Amen. The famous Anglican Bishop of Liverpool, Bishop Jesse Ryle, was converted to Christ through hearing this verse of Scripture read, Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 10. He was an undergraduate student at Oxford University, and as the, the minister or the speaker read the scriptures and he never found out who it was, never knew who it was, God wrote the truth of it upon his heart and he came to faith in Christ. And as each part of the verse was emphasised and each verse was slowly read out, God gave him an understanding of the way of salvation that he never had before. Because it's the truth, brethren and sisters, that's contained in these verses of scriptures that make us Christians. We're made Christians by what we read here in Ephesians 2, verse 8 to 10. And the text goes further. It tells us not only how we were saved, but it gives us the very reason for why we have been saved. I think this is one of the most crucial doctrinal statements that was ever written are ever given to us by divine revelation. There's a pastoral dimension to it because there are so many today who struggle, who struggle with assurance, who struggle with evangelical assurance and, and they're striving, they're working just as the liberals do to get their way to heaven. So pastorally, there's a very real application to all of our hearts and lives, but also uh, practically, because belief and practice can never be divorced one from the other. We are Christians as a result of God's amazing grace. The mere good pleasure and favour of God is the causative reason why you're sitting in those seats this evening as a child of the King of Kings. Twelve times over in our English authorised version of the scriptures, Paul uses the word grace. The word in the original is charis, and it refers to the divine influence of God upon the heart of man. But not only that, not only the divine influence of God upon the heart of man, the reflection of that influence from the heart of man. Because if you've been saved by God's grace, you ought to reflect God's grace which is a wonderful truth in and of itself. Grace has been defined by Terry L. Johnson in the following manner. It is by definition that which is not required but given freely anyway. Grace is unrequired, unobligated, self-determined, self-motivated, freely given mercy of God in Christ. Last week, when I was up at the, the funeral in Kilkeel, I looked at the multitudes, the crowds that were at that funeral. And I thought of the many, the many that are in their own community without Christ and without salvation. There are multitudes, brethren and sisters, all round about us that are living and dying without the Saviour. And looking at it from a human perspective, you could despair, but we ought not to despair. And why ought we not to despair? Because of grace. There is hope for every sinner because of grace. Otherwise, we might all despair. 
So if you have loved ones that are still unconverted and without the Savior, don't despair of them. Because there's grace. And it's grace that saved us. And it's grace that has to save them as well. So tonight I want to consider with you the grace of God in salvation. Here we have the, I think this ought to be the bedrock of every gospel-believing church. We ought to be preaching the free grace of God because everything else flows from it. And if this is the fountainhead, we ought to bring our congregation, saved and unsaved alike, back to the fountainhead time and time again. And I pray as we come to this fountainhead tonight that those who have proud hearts will be brought low, made to see what they are before God. And they'll be brought to the Saviour. And all who know and love the Saviour in the gathering will be encouraged and blessed in their own souls as we hear again of something that was without ourselves but reached into our hearts and brought us to the Lamb of God. I want you to notice first of all from this wonderful passage of Scripture how Paul teaches that salvation is all of grace. Amazing grace. The unmerited, the undeserved favour of God toward those least deserving of it. Grace comes to us not from our side. Grace comes to us from man's side. You would think to hear some talk today that grace is inherited. Grace is not inherited. It's not God's response to something that is within us. It is God's response to us in spite of us. Now Paul had introduced the concept of grace right in the opening few verses of this wonderful epistle to the Ephesians. Go back to chapter 1 and we read those familiar words of salutation that Paul gives in so many times. Verse 2, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be to you. Grace be to you. Verse 6. To the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. Verse 7. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. In every chapter except chapter 5, grace is uplifted and magnified. In chapter 2, verse 5, verse 7 and verse 8, again, the grace of God is emphasized. Look at verse 5. It's put in parentheses, in, 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 in brackets, just to emphasize to us that it is by whose grace, the grace of Christ, that we are saved and brought to Christ. One commentator very beautifully described grace as God's generous favor to undeserving sinners and needy saints. I am glad tonight that every saint in the gathering were recipients of the grace of God. Grace is God's free and undeserved bounty. It is according to the riches of his grace. God is not stingy with his grace. It's the expression of his goodness toward those least deserving of us. In salvation, men who deserve hell obtain heaven because of grace. It's humbling, I think, for us to realise all of these truths that salvation is not our due. God is not in your debt. God is not in your debt. 
There is nothing that we're due from God. There is nothing that we're due from God. The only thing we're due from God is condemnation. We have no right whatsoever to salvation. When you look at others and see them going out into the world, deeper, deeper into sin, blaspheming, persecuting, and you think, why would they do such things? Well, why would they not do such things apart from the grace of God? In this wonderful portion of scripture that has been read to us tonight, we read in verse 1 to 3 that the only thing that, man's, that man deserves is retribution. Now, let that sink in. That's, that's the only thing that is our due by Almighty God, by nature, by behavior, by our inclination. Man deserves nothing but retribution and damnation. If salvation is all of grace, damnation is all of sin and is our just and due desert. Man is shown in verse 1 to be dead. Dead in trespasses and in sins. That was what God warned Adam would happen if he ate the forbidden fruit and if he broke that covenant in Genesis chapter 1 that God had made with him. But Adam proceeded regardless and Eve proceeded regardless. They, they believed the devil rather than believing the Lord. And death not only entered Adam physically when he partook of the forbidden fruit and Eve, but death entered spiritually. They died. They died there and then. And no longer was he alive unto God. No longer could he commune with God in the cool of the evening and walk with God as he once did before. Now he hid from God. Now he covered himself because of his shame. Spiritually, his state was changed and changed forevermore. And the commentary of Ephesians 2 and 1 on Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3 is just this. That man now, as a result of being descendants from Adam as our federal head, we're born alive physically, but we're born dead spiritually. The picture here is of a corpse. A corpse that can't do anything for anyone or anything for itself. And it's not a pretty picture. And you know, the longer a corpse lies in a state of decay and death, the more death and decay seizes upon it. Let that truth sink into all of our hearts. That's why we have to reach the young whilst they're young. Man is shown not only to be dead, but under the dominion of Satan. Verse 2. Since the fall, Satan has been the invisible ruler of this world. The Bible says he's the power of the air. He does have awesome sway, awesome sway over the hearts and lives of multitudes. In 2 Corinthians 4, such is the sway that he has. He's the God of this world, verse 3 and 4 says, who hath blinded the minds of those that believe not. Blinded them. Blinded them. They're blinded, as it were, by his lights. They're blinded by the attractions that he has to offer. It's just like those headlights coming down the road to us. We see nothing else and we're just blinded. By it, and Satan has blinded the multitude by all that the world has to offer. And it's not until the sinner understands their desperate plight and their lost condition that they'll ever begin to seek God or understand their need of the Lord. 
So if you think a spiritual corpse can do anything to save itself, then you're still blinded. A corpse is unable to produce anything but death and decay. What's a corpse able to produce? Nothing except more death, more decay. Spiritually, mankind is deserving of something. We, we read in verse 2, he's deserving of wrath. We're fitted for nothing more than being children of wrath. We're sinners who are constantly under the wrath of a sin-hating God. Every soul is liable to suffer God's wrath. In Ephesians 5 and 6, we read that the wrath of God cometh upon the children of disobedience. God's wrath, his anger, his justice, it burns against every sinner. If you realize, really, this evening, where you are standing before Almighty God in Adam, you would, just like Adam, be rightly afraid and hide from him. God, despite man's ill deserts, the Bible tells us, he showers upon him the riches of his grace. And that's why verse 4 to 7 is a new section in this wonderful chapter. Now we're introduced, but God, who's rich in mercy... Isn't it wonderful when you come to those uh, buts in the Bible? But God, despite all that has gone before, but God who is rich in mercy for his great love wherewith he has loved us. Here we have the intervention of God in the lives of corpses. God is intervening in the lives of those for whom, humanly speaking, there is no alternative, there is no hope, but God. The writer of these words under the inspiration of the Spirit of God was Saul of Tarsus. If you had been a citizen of Jerusalem in the days of the New Testament church and saw Saul of Tarsus go about his business, breaking down doors, pulling Christians out of their home, hailing them to prison, putting hefty fines upon them, standing by the martyrdom of Stephen, keeping the coats, he was just as culpable as the ones who hurled the stones, keeping the, the coats, the garments of those who hurled the stone and, and put Stephen to death in Acts chapter 7. You would have looked at the Apostle Paul, Saul of Tarsus, and you would have said, there's no hope. There's no hope for that one. Why would anyone go and even try to interact with him and, and speak to him and, and witness the gospel to him? There's no hope for that individual. But God... A blasphemer, a tyrant, a persecutor. But God, God can intervene and change corpses. That's what Paul wrote later on in 1 Corinthians 15. He said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. But God in grace stepped in. Verse 5 to 6 of Ephesians 2 reminds us that when we were dead, God quickened us. This word here means to make alive. This is what we call in the theological terms regeneration. This is God putting his life within dead souls, making them alive. Remember we looked this morning that when God breathed into Adam, he became a living soul. God had to breathe into that form of clay in order for it to become the man that he wanted him to be. A living soul. And just at regeneration, the Spirit of God breathes the life of heaven into that dead corpse. And the dead corpse becomes alive. 
spiritually alive. Prior to this, that corpse has no ability, no spiritual life, no inclination toward the things of God. But God, God intervenes. God breathes his Holy Spirit into that life. And God puts the life of heaven within that soul. Regeneration, brethren and sisters, is where it all starts. It's the new life. We're made new creatures, new creations in Christ Jesus. Verse 7 teaches us that throughout all the, rage, all the ages we're going to show the riches of his grace. That's a wonderful truth. It doesn't matter how long we're going to be in heaven. It doesn't matter how long the long ages of eternity are going to be. We're going to be there to show out the riches of his grace. If we never <coughs> tire of hearing about grace here, we'll certainly never tire over there. Because for all eternity we're going to tell out that glad story of God's amazing grace. This saving grace is a free gift. It's a free gift to lost mankind. And that's the offer that's made in the gospel. What does God offer to sinners in the gospel? Grace. He offers them mercy. He offers them favor. And if it was only given to those that were worthy, then none of us would ever be saved because we have no worth, we have no merit of our own. Just remember that first point, salvation, it's all of grace. Secondly, because of that, we can say self can never boast about salvation. We can never boast about our contribution. What did you bring to salvation? What did you bring to the Lord that would have contributed to your salvation? Verse 8 says, it's not of yourselves. There is nothing in any of us that could ever have contributed to salvation. Verse 9 tells us it's not of works. So not just look at who you are, but what you're doing. It's not of works, lest any man should boast. The child of God acknowledges that they have nothing to boast about. That word boast, it's, it's a lovely old word and it means to vaunt oneself. How you vaunt, you, you lift up yourself above everybody else. You brag about what you've done. You promote oneself. You glory about yourself. That's what boasting is. But when it comes to salvation, brethren and sisters, we have nothing to boast about. Nothing to boast about. The fact that God has saved us, it gives us no ground for boasting. When you look at the multitudes and you see them rejecting the Lord, do not think that you somehow are better than they. Because we have nothing to boast about. The old Saul of Tarsus had, had a lot to brag about. If bragging rights meant anything, well, he had a lot to brag about. If you turn over to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter uh, 3, verse 4 to 8. Philippians chapter 3 and verse 4. Paul's recounting his upbringing. Philippians 3 verse 4, he said, Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any man thinketh that he hath whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more. So what he was saying, if any of you think you have something to trust in your upbringing and something to contribute to salvation, 
I had more reason to hope than, than many others. Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee. He was a real pedigree, wasn't he? He had a real thoroughbred background. He was, as touching the law, a Pharisee. Oftentimes we look at the Pharisees and, and because we know of their opposition to the Saviour, we somehow imagine that they were irreligious people. They were not, brethren and sisters. They were very religious people. And when they said they fasted twice a week, they did that. When they said they prayed every day, they did that. When they said that they tithed even the, the very herbs that they, they farmed and they produced, with, they did that. They were so particular about all that they did. That's why there were Pharisees concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. Blameless. He was so uh, he, he was so careful in what he did, he was blameless. But he looked back and he said, But what things were gained to me, those I counted lost for Christ. Yeah, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and to count them but dung, that I may win Christ. All of those things that Paul mentioned, all of the bragging rights that he had in his days as a Pharisee, what did he say they were? Just as manure. You and I would never have put it like that. But that's what all of those good works were. When it comes to salvation, Paul could contribute nothing. Even the very best he said that he could contribute. All his bragging rights, they were just like dung. He took up this in many other places. Let me share just some verses for sake of time. Romans 3, 27, 28. Where is boasting then is excluded? By what law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. Where is boasting? There's no boasting. Chapter 9, verse 11. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him that calleth. Here Paul is referring back to election. He said, how could anybody boast of their works? For, be, for before they were even born, in God's elective purposes, they were already called. In Romans chapter 11, 5 and 6, he said, Even so at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it's no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. You talk to church-going, self-righteous people and mourn about this wonderful concept of grace. And they'll, they'll tell you, well, I've, I've been in the church all of these years. I've paid and I've attended. My, my grandparents have done the same. And I have no doubt, just like Paul, they did all of those things and they do all of those things. But none of those things are ground for hope when it comes to salvation. They're not there. 
I think one of the greatest passages to do with this is found in the book of Titus. Titus chapter 3 verse 3 onward. For we ourselves also were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. But after that the kindness and love of God our Saviour toward mankind appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. That being justified by his grace we should be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. I see no hope other than in grace. When the Saviour and when Paul spoke against a works-based religion of the Pharisees, he knew and they knew that he was pulling the very rug from underneath their feet. They had, they had spent their whole lives doing all of these things. If somebody even brushed up against them in the street, they, they, they were contaminated. That's why when they came in, they ceremonially washed their hands. It wasn't just, as it were, a, a cleansing, a routine. It was a ceremonial cleansing because even the defilement of people in the street, they knew they, they, in, their, in their minds they wanted to be clean from it. And now they were being told it's all in vain. You can't work your way to heaven. To this day, I think, well, I know that self-righteous people are the hardest to win to Christ. Moralistic, religious people cling on to their good works and in doing so, they reject the work of Christ. If you think your good works make you a Christian, then you're putting yourself under the law and if you're under the law, no man can be justified by the law because under the law there's only condemnation. We have nothing to glory or boast about. Free Presbyterians have nothing to glory in or boast about. Luther once said that we're born beggars and we die beggars. What did he mean by that? Every day we're dependent upon the amazing grace of God. Today many talk about salvation as if it's something, well, God did all of this, but I contribute this. You realise it tonight and realise it good. That you contribute nothing. Absolutely nothing. I want you to see thirdly that salvation is realised through faith in the merits of our Lord Jesus Christ. The verse says... By grace are you saved through faith. Through faith. In verse 7, uh, we're made to realise that, so, that it's through the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us <coughs> through Jesus Christ that we're saved. And of course, that's the constant theme in Paul's writings. And here we're taught again that we're declared righteous, we're justified freely by God's grace. God's favour. Being made known to the undeserving, in reality to the hell-deserving. God made his grace known to you and I who were undeserving of it, but only deserving of judgment. Our Saviour, by his spotless life and by his atoning death and by that precious blood 
that was shed on Calvary, he satisfied all the demands of God's just and holy law. And thus, in verse 25, 26, we read that God is seen to be just and the justifier of him that believeth in Christ Jesus. Now, people come constantly and they say, well, what's my part then? What is my part in salvation? What's your part in salvation? Well, your part is to take the sinner's part. There's no other part. Your part is just to acknowledge what you are before a thrice holy God. You can do nothing on your part other than to cast yourself down upon his grace. We read in the Catechism, what is faith in Jesus Christ? Well, it says faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he's offered to us in the gospel. What is it? It's a saving grace whereby we receive and we rest upon him alone for salvation. We receive and rest upon him alone for salvation. We, we know that even the faith that we have tonight, it's a saving grace. It's a gift from God bestowed upon us. And when we receive and rest upon Christ alone for salvation, as it's offered in the gospel, we come to personally realize that saving grace in our own heart and in our life. Faith is not the cause of your salvation. Faith is the instrument of your salvation. It's the hand of faith that accepts the gift that God offers freely. And this is the evidence this is the evidence of quickening. This is the evidence of regeneration. Corpses say nothing. Corpses don't cry out to God for mercy. It's only those that have been made alive cry out to God for mercy. And those who have been made alive by his grace will seek him and call upon him. And unless you have sought him and called upon him, let me say to all of you, young and old alike, there is no evidence whatsoever that tonight... That you're a child of God. Indeed the very opposite. That you're still a child of wrath. Consider with me in closing. In verse 10. That we have been saved unto good works. Good works don't come before conversion. Good works come after conversion. God's way is the exact opposite of trying to work our way to heaven. God makes Christians and then they go on to do their good works. That is not to say that unsaved people don't do anything good and don't do any good works because we believe in common grace. But we're talking here about saving grace. And when God saves someone then they go on to do good works that are well pleasing well pleasing in his sight. Being a Christian means, verse 10 says, we are God's workmanship. We are God's work. Now, do you get that? Over the past months, I've had the opportunity to show people around this building and, and around the new extension upstairs in the upper room. And people have said, who did that? And who did that? And I'd say, well, that's the workmanship of such and such. And that's the workmanship of of somebody else and when they see it they they can see the evidence of the workmanship and when people see your life and my life they should see God's workmanship salvation is a work of God's grace 
Remember what was said at the start? It's not just the divine influence upon a soul. It's the reflection of that grace from a soul. Grace is not just God influencing a soul. Grace is being reflected from that soul. It is something that God has done in us. But it's something that God continues to do through us. I look back in my own life. God intervened in my own life in many, many different ways. But at 16 years of age, he intervened in a saving manner. And he did the work of salvation in my life. And I'm glad that that day was that happy day whereby I fixed my immortal choice, Christ for me, Christ for me. But he continues that work. And he's still working in my life. And he's still shaping, moulding and making this poor vessel of clay into the workmanship that he wants it to be. And you take encouragement, dear Christian, tonight. Maybe you're battling. You're battling with something in your life. You're battling with some a problem in your life. And you, you, you've tried for all so many ways and for so long in trying to get victory over. Just let me encourage you to battle on and to press on because God hasn't finished his work in you. Sanctification is never complete until we're taken to glory. God's work is ongoing. We're the divine creation. It's not the old man reformed. It's the new man revealed. And those works, the Bible tells us, they help and ordain that we should walk in them. And the context simply means this. We're his creation. We're his work. And how do I know that? Because it says... Uh, not, in Ab, not in Adam, but in Christ Jesus. We're his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. Created in Christ Jesus. According as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. How we rejoice in the, the, the salvation of God. And if somebody asks you in the week that lies ahead, well, what is salvation? I hope you'll be able to tell them. Well, it's all of God's grace. If it was left to us, there'd be no hope. We wouldn't have a message to preach to the hopeless. We wouldn't have anything to say. We, we would just say we're all lost. The ship's going down and we're going down with it. But there's grace. So don't give up on others. Don't give up on others because salvation is not of self. Don't look at that individual and say, oh, if they could only just turn a little bit, if they could only just change a little bit. They, brethren and sisters, they need to be raised from the death of sin. They need the new life of God within their soul. And what does that? Grace does that. Nothing but the amazing grace of God. Amongst evangelical Christians today, we have sort of like a, so they say, a halfway house message. God does all of this, bless his name, but we have to do this. Let me tell you, either God does it all or it falls. Salvation is all of grace. And I'm glad because of grace one day is going to bring it to completion. 
And one day he's going to present every brother and sister in the gathering. He's going to present us before the Father in heaven. Faultless, the Bible says. Flawless and without blame. Not wonderful. Even to contemplate that day. We look at ourselves today. We look in the mirror of the word of God. We despair of ourselves. Never never mind others. But here's the fruit of grace. One day he's going to present us faultless, flawless in the Father's presence. To those that are unconverted, I urge you tonight, don't rest in your sin. If you've known something of the Spirit's striving and quickening, then in true believing faith, receive and rest upon Christ as he's offered freely in the gospel. His work alone, that's all you need to save your soul.